Amen. Amen. You can be seated because I'm sure you are either kneeling or standing. You are worshiping with everything in you. And so thank you for pressing in with us. Uh, again, excited that you're joining us for this online service today. I want to remind you, moms, if you joined in a little late, today from 3 to 4 o'clock, I will be out in our lobby right outside the east door, and uh, I've got Dove chocolates for you, and I'd love the opportunity to just personally wish you a happy Mother's Day. Uh, you don't need to get out of your car. Uh, I'll make sure to have masks and gloves, and we'll make sure to keep you safe. But if you have time and can drive through from 3 to 4, uh, moms, if you can't come, <clears throat> send your husband and your kids, or just your husband, or just your kids, and uh, just come through, and uh, Restoration Moms, we want to bless you and, and just honor you on your special day. So that's going to take place, and then uh, we are making some preparations. The city did announce yesterday the new guidelines that they'd like businesses to observe. They didn't give anything specifically for churches, uh, but we're going to follow what they've asked businesses to follow, and so we're in the process of trying to make the building ready for that. And uh, we'll get information out to you when we can resume in-person services. And so in the meantime, uh, we're going to continue with the online option that we have. And even after we come back to in-person, for those of you maybe that aren't comfortable uh, coming to the in-person service or you live far away and uh, you can't, we're going to continue our online service. Uh, we've made some improvements to it and we're going to try to keep those going uh, as we go ahead. And so today we're going to continue through our series on Trust the Story. This is the ninth part of it, and I've entitled today's message, After God's Own Heart. And I'm actually going to preach that message here in a minute, but I want to take time to kind of go through what we've read and kind of go through what we've done. Um, as I've previously said in some of these messages, we've made CDs and DVDs available for you. Our podcast, you can find us at Restoration Church. Um, through iTunes, or you can find us on Podbean, uh, Restoration Church on there. Links on our website. Our Facebook page has these services. You can go back and watch them online. Um, we have made handouts available on our website. Those are there for you to download. There's timelines. There's information. There's explanations. There's maps. Uh, the video series that the world may know uh, by Ray Vanderlyn, put out by Focus on the Family. Some of you have already made a, um, use of that, and you've borrowed copies. I've got other copies available. Some of the things I've shared, he will go into great detail. He'll actually take you on site in Israel, in Turkey, in Jordan, in some of the places where these events actually occurred, and he'll help you to understand them from that context. And so uh, we have all together been using the book, The Untold Story, by Frank Viola, we've got a few copies left here if you haven't picked one up yet. They are available on Kindle. Um, on Kindle, it's a little harder to know what pages to read because this last week we read pages 73 to 83 and then Acts chapter 13 and basically Acts chapters 13 and 14. But you can kind of see where the, the connections are as you're reading through Acts and you read through the, the untold story because all the untold story does is give us a fuller explanation of what's happening in the text. Tries to put it in the, the concept so that we understand what's, what's taking place um, in that time period and why those things are happening. This week, we're going to read pages 83 through 85 and the book of Galatians because this is now the time that Paul writes that letter to the Galatians and to those churches in Galatia that he has just visited in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And so take the time to read through that. Um, some of you I know 
have wanted to read, you're a week behind in the reading, and that's okay if that's how you'd want to do it. So I preach on it, and then you that next week want to read those things. You can do it however you want. We've set it up so that you read in advance, and then uh, as we gather together, we kind of gather around that word, and I share some thoughts on it. Um, but you can you can do it both. You can read it before and after. Uh, the reading guides are available online. You can find those there as well. Um, I just want to emphasize um, this this uh, uh, a truth, if you will. There's an argument that's out there uh, in the the church world where we just we don't need anything but the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And I don't disagree with that statement. But the problem for, for that thing, for that statement is the Bible itself was written in a different land, in a different time, to a different people, in a totally different culture. And so when, when Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to teach you, he was talking to uh, those who were raised, who had memorized the Old Testament writings, the, the law, the prophets and the writings, and they had, they had grown up in it, they had heard about it. Um, they understood things differently than you and I do. Now, could the Holy Spirit help us to understand those things without some of these extra biblical sources? He could, but many times we're not looking for them. And so these extra biblical sources are not... Um, put on the same plane as scripture, they're helping us to fully understand the scripture. And so don't shy away from these extra biblical things, these studies, the writings of Josephus, um, this book, The Untold Story, other commentaries, things by Ray Vanderlyn, because I believe they're giving us the understanding that we need uh, to make sense of some of the things that we're reading. For those of you maybe that don't know this, the Old Testament, the, the books of the Old Testament, scholars can't fully agree whether the books of Chronicles or the book of Malachi is our last official book. But as these books are collected and, and gathered and written down, from the time that the last one was written to the time that Jesus came, there's a period of 400 years where there's nothing in our Bible. And that 400-year period of Jewish history really tells us a lot of stuff. It really helps us understand what kind of culture that Jesus has come to. Now, we, we often refer to this as the silent years just because the Bible doesn't speak on it. But 400 years is a long time. To put it into context, think about this. The United States is less than 250 years old. So I want you to think about how the U.S., the United States, how we have changed over the course of 250 years and think about what has happened in Israel over the 400 years that we have no, no writings on other than maybe the writings of Josephus and some of the other uh, Jews that have, have written some history for. So there's a lot going on. One of those things is this idea of synagogue. Synagogue is not a building. Synagogue literally means an assembly, a gathering. So the Jews, when they come back from exile, they begin this thing called synagogue. Now later, they build synagogue buildings, and then they, they meet in those buildings. But what it is, is they, they would come together, and they would read from the law. They would read from the prophets. And they would, would put, put the person who's reading in the center of the crowd. So literally, the people could come around the word of God to hear the word together. And then the teachers would sometimes expound on it. Um, but only people who were born in that community, members of that community, could ever read in the synagogue. And you had to be trained to be able to read. They also um, wanted to, to teach their kids, they wanted to school them in the, the law and the prophets. 
All of this, as they're coming out of exile, comes from this desire that they want to get it right. They recognize they went into exile because they, they got it wrong. They forsook the law of God. They, they weren't listening to the story. They were doing their own thing. They didn't even listen to the prophets. They begin to repent. Not all of them, but many of them come back to the land of Israel, and they begin to reestablish themselves in the land of Israel. And out of that desire to do it right comes this desire to know God's word and to sit around it and to meditate on it, to memorize it. And they want to pass it on to that next generation. So every Jewish boy and many of the Jewish girls would attend school to memorize the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would commit it to memory, so much so that the rabbi would start quoting from somewhere, not tell them where, stop, point to them, and they had to begin to pick up right where he left off. They wanted to commit it to memory. And if you graduated from that school and you excelled, you went on to also memorize the prophets and the writings. And if you graduated from that school and you excelled, you could literally be schooled. You could follow a rabbi. You could come after him. You could follow him, learn from him, be his teachings, and someday hopefully become a teacher of the law or a rabbi yourself. And that's what's taking place. Now you understand, when Jesus comes along and he calls um, Peter and James and John and Andrew to be his disciples, they would have gone through the first schooling. They would have memorized all of the Law and the Prophets. We believe most of them would have been under the age of 20 at the time that they were called. Maybe Peter, being the oldest, would be about 22, 23 years old, maybe. They were not old. These were young men. They were still, they had still gone through this schooling, and now you understand the excitement that this rabbi says, come follow me. Because they weren't obviously the cream of the crop that were going to go on to the next level. So they went and they worked their trade. But they understood the law just like every Jewish boy and girl had done. There are other groups during this period that we're introduced to. The Sadducees, we know about them. The Zealots, we hear about them in the Gospels. The Essenes, the Pharisees. And we hear about these groups, but in in this 400-year period, they really come to power, and they come into this place of influence because they want to get it right. They don't want to get this wrong again. They don't want to go back into exile. And then what happens is cultures begin to come in and take over. So they come back under the Babylonians, under the Persians, but then we get to the Greek Empire. And this history lesson is very important because when the Greek Empire comes to power, what happens is it begins to influence us into Western thought. We don't know how badly we are influenced by Western thought because it's all we know. But when the Greek Empire comes to power, it's the first time that this idea of the gospel of the Greek Empire, remember how we talked about that word gospel, is not unique to the scriptures, and it didn't even start with the scriptures. It starts with the Greek Empire. The gospel of the good news of the Greek Empire with the Savior, Alexander the Great. He is coming to you to tell you the good news of the Greek Empire because as, as they expand, as they take over the world, they don't have an army large enough to come and to force you into submission. So they're going to get you to buy into the Greek Empire, the gospel, the good news of it, so that you want to follow them. This is the first time any civilization in history becomes me-centered. Up until this point, civilizations 
mostly are centered around the gods, even pagan ones. It's the gods. We've got to keep the gods happy. But if you look at Greek mythology, even the gods are created to look like people. So for the Greeks, it becomes all about me and my and everything. And we are so influenced by that thought. But the four pillars of the Greek empire are education, healthcare, entertainment, and sports. Alexander the Great believed if he could give you education, if he could give you health care, if he could give you entertainment, if he could give you sports, you would buy into the Greek empire and you would become his loyal subjects. That, I'm telling you, we are so influenced by this culture, but into that culture, the Romans come, they build on it. Into that culture, Jesus comes and he says, no, I come with good news of the kingdom. Expand my kingdom. And uh, if you want to watch Ray Vanderlyn in some of his later episodes, he really goes into this culture of the kingdom. And uh, we've talked about how those two kingdoms clash, the kingdom of empire and the kingdom of, the, of, the war, of God, and uh, how those things clash, and they don't coexist. They run opposite each other. But let's go into just a quick review of where we've been. A.D. 30, uh, the Holy Spirit gets poured out on the day of Pentecost. We believe persecution then begins. Uh, A.D. 35 to 37, Stephen is martyred, the first martyr in the church. Sometime after that, Jesus appears to Saul, even up to maybe A.D. 40. James is martyred in A.D. 44. The prayer meeting that we talked about in Antioch last year, or last week, excuse me, when, the, um, when Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church on a missionary journey, happens around A.D. 47. So 17 years after the day of Pentecost, Paul and Barnabas are headed out on their first missionary journey. And I've put a map in there, um, in our handouts today, and uh, this will give you an idea. We're going to refer back to this. There's also a copy of it in your book. If you um, go to the beginning of the chapter we read, page 72, there's a map of that there. If you've got your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 13. And we're going to kind of walk our way through a little bit of this chapter, and then we're going to come back to Paul's sermon in Acts chapter uh, 13. I want to look back also on last week. While you're getting all of those materials, I also put together a picture that I uploaded to our website of what we talked about last week. And I believe this is going to be foundational for the rest of our study, and it's going to be foundational for where we are as a church When we talk about building God's house, building God's temple, we know that individually, we are God's house. Corporately, as a church, we are God's house. And the foundation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. The pillars of that house are the pillars of justice. That's fair treatment, loving our neighbor, helping the oppressed, the the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. The pillar of mercy, letting people off the hook, withholding judgment, What that really means is we are not going to pass judgment. We are reserving judgment. We're putting it in the hands of of God who judges justly, who judges fairly. We aren't going to judge. We're going to give mercy. And then the pillar of humility or faith, as Jesus refers to it, and that is prayer, Sabbath, or that literally that place of rest and place of obedience. And that's what we talked about last week. 
And uh, I know that so many times, every one of you are like, man, Pastor, you share so much on Sunday morning. I feel like I'm drinking through a fire hose sometimes. And I'm okay with that because what I believe is we're doing is laying a foundation not to give you all the facts of the Bible. I'm trying to teach you how to study the Bible so that from now through December, we're not going to come to December and you're going to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers, but by December, I hope we have laid a foundation to teach you how to read the word, how to draw the truth out of the word, how to apply the word. So from now until that point, I'm giving you this information and a lot of it I keep repeating, and I believe that the Holy Spirit's going to connect it. Maybe not in a sermon time, maybe in something else you read, maybe something a little bit later down the road, but Jesus continued to teach over and over these things, and I guarantee you, Crowds walked away from some of Jesus' teaching like they drank from a fire hose. How are we supposed to remember all that? How are we supposed to get all of that? And Jesus, it's not like you have to walk away today and have it all figured out. You have to trust. You have to drink in. You have to write down what the Holy Spirit highlights in your heart today. You have to just keep rehearsing the story. Just keep drinking it in, drinking it in, and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to bring it out at that right time. So, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Silas set out from a place called Antioch. Remember, Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's not even on our map here. It's way down here. 300 miles would take them about two weeks to travel. So from Jerusalem up to Antioch, that's about a two-week journey. We've, we were told in this, the untold story this week they can travel about 20 miles per day on foot. Maybe a little faster if they have a donkey, but a lot of times they're on foot 20 miles a day. I want you to begin to understand the time and the space that it takes for some of these things to be written and to see how difficult it is. Because we look at the book of Acts and think, man, things just happen. Boom, boom, boom. 17 years. Two weeks to travel from city to city. I mean, you got to understand, we sometimes get frustrated when we start praying about something or God gives us a vision and within three months, man, it's not even happening yet. You got to understand with God, this is a process. This is a journey and things are germinating. Things are being cultivated and we have to stay with the process. We do not get weary in doing what is right because at the right time, we're going to reap a harvest if we do not give up. So the first place they sail is to the island of Cyprus. There's a large Jewish community on the island of Cyprus because Paul is preaching in all of the synagogues. And if there's a lot of synagogues, that means that there's a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Jewish communities. And again, only the members of the synagogue can read in the synagogue service. Now, if you're like Paul and Barnabas and you're a traveling teacher and you come in after the reading, they can turn to you and say, brothers, do you have anything to share, to teach? But you can't read from the law or the prophets, the daily readings in there, because you're not a part of that community, that, that synagogue. So they start on the east side. They make their way west, teaching in the synagogues. And then when they come to the west side, we have this interesting story where um, the governor calls for Paul to begin to teach him, and the governor's servant is making it hard for Paul, and there's opposition, and all of this stuff is taking place, and Paul turns to him and strikes him with blindness, and the governor sees this, and he's like, 
whoa, and he's converted. So you got to go back. You're going to have to read the stories. I don't have time to take you through these whole two chapters. This is just a quick synopsis. Then we come, and they're going to set sail from this island uh, of Cyprus, and they're going to go up here into the area called Galatia. And the first place that he comes to in Acts chapter 13, if you've got your Bible, Acts 13, 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is going to be important later, but John Mark, who comes, that's Barnabas' cousin, comes along with them. Somehow he gets disillusioned. Somehow this is a lot more difficult than he expected. There's persecution that he wasn't expecting. Paul is doing way more talking to the Gentiles than he's comfortable with. And so he just goes home. It's like, I'm done and I'm leaving. Now, we're, we'll get back to, to John later, but you got to know this is where it happened. Then from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. So they traveled north to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue. They sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the leaders from the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation to the people, please speak. And then Paul gets up and he delivers this great sermon. And it really parallels the sermon that Stephen gives before he gets stoned, that Paul would have been present for. And it parallels Stephen's message, and we believe would be Paul's message. He goes back through Jewish history, and then he outlines how Jesus has become the fulfillment of all of these things, and he points to Jesus just the same way Stephen did. Um, and we're going to come back to his sermon in just a minute. But what happens then at the end of this, because they meet for synagogue on the Sabbath, and generally it's just Sabbath to Sabbath. There's nothing that takes place in the synagogue in between. So most of the time, if Paul is teaching in the synagogues, it's on Sabbath. And then let's look at verse 42. Paul and Barnabas are leaving the synagogue. The people invited to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? Now, Paul does have some conversations between the weeks in different places with different people. But when it's like he spoke in the synagogue like four times, that's guaranteeing us he was there at least four weeks. It's a time period. So on the next Sabbath, they're excited. They're, they want him to come. And the congregation's dismissed. Many of the Jews and the proselytes, or the devout converts to Judaism, followed him, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city has gathered to hear the word of the Lord because the people who left told other people so that they could gather together. Isn't this... Isn't this a great picture of what we're supposed to be in the church world? Um, I hope you're seeing that. But there's all this opposition. Now, we sometimes get hard on the Jews because they're jealous. They're, they're opposing Paul. But remember, this comes from a desire to get it right. They don't want to go back into exile. They don't want to be untrue to the scriptures. And what Paul is teaching seems to point one it's going to get them in trouble with the empire because he's preaching another kingdom, another savior. Rome's going to hear about this. Rome's going to take away our freedoms. Rome's not going to let us read the Torah. Rome's not going to let us do what we need to do. And so from a good place, from a place where they're being zealous for what they think is the truth, they're opposing Paul. So don't get hard on them right away for, uh, for their opposition. They need to have their hearts opened to what Paul is preaching. Paul himself 
was guilty of this opposition. He, he gave his approval of the stoning of Stephen. He was throwing the early converts into prison. Paul had to have an encounter with Jesus that radically transformed him so that he knew he really wasn't violating God's word. He was walking in the fulfillment of God's word. But I want us to look at how the, the believers here respond to this opposition. Okay, Acts chapter 13, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women. Okay, so Jews are those that are Israelites. The proselytes, or those who had been converted to Judaism, are Gentiles who get ceremonially washed. They get circumcised. They commit themselves to follow the Torah, and they become a full-fledged member of the synagogue. But then there are people that are like, eh, we like this God, we fear him, we want to follow him, but we're not ready to take that full plunge. They're also a part of the synagogue. So you have Jews, you have the proselytes who come in who are basically Gentile Jews converted to Judaism, and then you just have God-fearers, okay? So they, the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expel them from the region. So Paul, instead of fighting, I mean, he's planted a church here. Come on, Paul, fight to stay and help that church. But what's he do? He goes, moves on to the next community. And look what the believers do. They're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the believers left behind, man, they've only had about three months with Paul, but Paul has planted a church, and there he goes. He's moving on. He's entrusting those new believers to the Lord. Then we come into Acts 14. He does the same thing in Iconium. In Acts chapter uh, 8, 14, 8 through 19, he does the same thing in Lystra, in Derby. He's setting up these churches. He's setting up these places where there, there are believers that are beginning to gather together. They've believed in Jesus as Messiah. They, they're, again, part of these three groups, but now they're becoming full believers. And Paul, the main thrust of his sermon, the main thing that he's teaching is found here in Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that this man is preached to you, Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So what he's saying is, men and women, listen, there is atonement in the old covenant. It paid the penalty for your sin but it could never do it completely. It, all, those sacrifices had to be offered daily. Those sacrifices had to be offered year after year. Those sacrifices had to be offered when you committed sin. It could not free you from your sin. It could cover your sin, but it, it could give you atonement, but it could not free you. It could not impute righteousness to you. It could not justify you. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justice justification that his death and his resurrection puts us in total right standing with God and the law of Moses could never do that for us and this is the message that Paul is preaching everywhere that he goes in Hebrews chapter 10 by that one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy 
And so brothers and sisters, understand this message is the message you and I need to be preaching. There's forgiveness of sins in Jesus. There's justification. There's total freedom from sin. Everything depends. It's the foundation of the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the message. And in the face of persecution, stay on message. Keep preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Keep being aware of the gospel of empire. This gospel of empire is a subtle thing. And I think sometimes in our American culture, we're like, we got to fight for our rights. We got to have the right to do this and the right to do that. But I challenge you, how many, how much have we done with those rights over the last 250 years? How have we used those rights to fulfill the great commission, to preach the gospel everywhere we go, to tell our coworkers and to tell our neighbors? How have we been using those rights to disciple nations? How have we been using those rights to, to fight for injustice, to, to deal with the racial restoration that needs to take place and the, the oppression that's taking place. So we don't need to fight for our rights. We need to keep declaring the kingdom of God. And I know there's a balance because I know the Apostle Paul used his rights to save himself a beating and he used his rights to appeal to Caesar. But over and over again. How we handle persecution is not to fight for our rights. How we handle persecution is to continue to declare the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They can tell us we can't meet. They can take away every Bible they want. But if we commit it to memory, we put it in our hearts. Let me tell you something. They cannot stop the kingdom of God from moving forward. The scripture in the New Testament teaches us over and over Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. <laughs> I mean, did you amen that? They're going to flourish, but they will deceive others and they will be deceived. Some of us are like, oh, we got to go after that person. They're deceiving others. But you... Don't let them get you off course. Don't let these things get you off course. Be faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they're true. You know you can trust those who have taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures, which, by the way, is the law, prophet, and writings at this point. The Scriptures have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes from trusting in Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. We know that they help us to develop endurance. Endurance develops strength of character. Character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope does not disappoint. We know how dearly God loves us. He's given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Christ we got to understand this suffering, this persecution is necessary. It's going to shape us. Don't believe the lie that says Christ suffered for us so we don't have to suffer. I understand why people say that. And yes, Christ suffered so that we don't have to suffer eternally. But I don't know how you take Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 that says... Christ suffered and he learned obedience through suffering. I don't know how you take 1 Peter chapter 2 where God called us to do good even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example. Follow in his steps, his steps of suffering. 
He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin, alive for what is right, and by his wounds you are healed. I promise you that people will be healed by the wounds of suffering and persecution that come into your life just like they were for Jesus. We overcome evil with good. And sometimes blood has to be shed. Sometimes wounds have to be felt in order for the kingdom of God to be released into our life and into the lives of others. So don't get off course. Stay true to the message. It all depends upon Jesus from start to finish. And keep preaching that message. Then the Apostle Paul, in the Acts chapter 14, he heads back home and he begins to encourage the believers all of his way back. In Acts chapter 14, it says it right here. He's encouraging the believers. He's traveling back through each of the towns. He's laying hands on and fasting over the elders. All right, he's appointing elders and they're laying hands on them and fasting because they're, they're trusting this three to four month old church into the hands of these men and women, these elders of the church. And they're just saying, God, it's all on you now. And later, Paul's gonna return to Antioch and he's gonna write the letter to Galatians and he's gonna send it off to them. I'm gonna tell you, when, when I read this, this chapter this week, I thank God that he has put in our hearts as a church the, the vision for church planting. This is how the gospel spreads. We need a church in Redfield, South Dakota. We need a church on the ground, a restoration church in DeSmet, South Dakota. We need a restoration church in Woonsocket. And it doesn't have to look like we've had it look. It doesn't have to be a building with worship services. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we need restoration churches in small communities so that the body of Christ can continue to build themselves up, so they can continue to evangelize. And this is how the disciples evangelized in the early church. This is how we're called to evangelize. And you're going to keep hearing about that because it's in our DNA and it's not fully in us yet but God's putting it in us and I think sometimes we wait for just the right moment just so everything's perfect and if we wait for everything to be perfect we're never going to launch it we've got to trust the Lord with this we've got to begin fasting and praying and believing God for it and be ready to send these people out because the We've got to be ready to do it different. I love that in our body, we've been talking about doing things different. We're ready to relocate. We're ready to be transformed. We don't need church in this context. The idea that we have to be in this room to be connected is a lie. And if you, here's the thing. If we have to be here to be connected, we're doing it wrong. And I love that Corona is now forcing us to be connected as a body, even when we can't be together physically. We've got to find a way to do this. This is our calling. This is something God put in our hearts years before Corona. And it's starting to be unleashed. It's starting to be poured out. And I'm excited for it. I know God is opening doors and we're going to share more about it in the weeks ahead. The things that we've had as a vision for years are coming to pass, and I believe are going to come to pass. And so keep fasting, keep praying, because here's the thing. Every single one of us has a part to play in this. The vision of Restoration Church is not Tom Brantner. The vision of Restoration Church is not Tom, Mark, and John. The vision of Restoration Church is not our deacons. It's not our contenders. It's every member of Restoration Church living out the vision God has given us, coming to the table with what God has brought you to the table with. And I want us to go back to Paul's message. I want us to go to back to Acts chapter 13 because I want to read something to you that I believe God 
God dropped in my spirit. And over the next 10 minutes, I want to put something in your heart that we need to become men and women after God's own heart. Because the vision that he has for us as a church, the vision that he has for your life as an individual, you have to become a man or woman after God's own heart. When Paul is preaching, the one way that his sermon is different from um, from uh, Stephen's sermon is this. Stephen points to David, but, but Paul does something different, and I don't think it's by accident. He says this, the people begged for a king. He's rehearsing Jewish history. And God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, who reigned for 40 years. That's important. Numbers in the Bible are so important. 40 is a number of completion, a number of judgment. I mean, there's so much we could go into. That's significant. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 14, where God himself, when Samuel is looking for a king, he looks for a king, and he's looking for someone that looks like a king. And God's like, don't pick that one. Pick this one. This is a man that is after my heart. And that's what he tells David. That literally means this is a man who is in compliance with my will. In compliance with my will. Please do not be confused by the phrase that we use in English, he'll do everything I want. David was not perfect. God is not looking for perfect individuals. He is looking for covenant partners who buy into his story. God has always, he has not once found a perfect person other than Jesus. Sometimes people are like, well, you know, David, uh, Jesus, David lived a lot like Jesus. Mm, no, Jesus lived a lot like David. Okay, because David was the kind of partner God was looking for. And Jesus was the kind of partner God was looking for. So I know that Jesus was born before David. I get all of that. But don't, don't miss this. David was the partner God wanted. That's what it is to be a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean I live my life perfect. It means I'm after his story. I'm after what God's after. I want to see his kingdom established on the earth. And when Paul is telling this story, I believe he's pointing back because the people, when they wanted a king, God was not opposed to them having a king, okay? God was opposed to them having a king like the rest of the nations around them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, the people said to Samuel, you are old. You got to love that when you're the leader of the people and they're like, you're old <laughs> and your sons, we don't like them. They don't follow your ways. Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other kings have. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, you will find the guidelines God gives them for a king. He says, do not choose a king like other nations choose. Choose this type of king. So what do they ask for? They're asking for a king like the other nations have. So God gives them a king like other nations have. Handsome, head taller, man of good standing. And the funny thing is, he's a donkey herder. Many scholars think that there's an irony there, 
okay? Because you know the, the common phrase for donkey uh, or the slang phrase for donkey? Yeah, we think that maybe God gave them a donkey herder on purpose to make a point. You're asking for what I told you not to ask for. You're acting like a bunch of donkeys. Okay, so there it is. That's right there. That's what I, and I honestly believe Paul knows the scripture. He knows the history. And we know that this is not the type of king that God is asking for. And when we find Paul, Saul, he's hiding. Okay, he's not hiding. Listen to this. Okay, bear with me. You need to hear this. He's not hiding because he's humble. He's hiding because he's insecure. Insecurity can look a lot like humility, and it is not anywhere near it. Humility is a confidence in the Lord. It's a boldness in God. It's understanding who we are in Him. Insecurity will act out. Insecurity will act humble, but it will act for self. It will act in self-interest. And insecurity will, if you do not get a handle on insecurity, it'll destroy you and it'll destroy everyone you lead. And Saul is covered in insecurity. And so David comes along and Samuel's not even going to pick David. <laughs> his, his father doesn't even call him. Because it's like, yeah, David's, you know, his strength, his build, his characteristics, eh, he's not kingly material. But God's like, don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the, the heart. And what sets David apart from, from the other types of kings? you got to understand this. We are introduced to him at David and Goliath. And this is such an awesome story. In, i got to take you back to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20, we're told that among all the soldiers of the tribes of Benjamin, there's, a, there's thousands of swordsmen. But there were 700 select troops who were left-handed. Each of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So the tribe of Benjamin is known for their slingshot ability. Okay? Now there's a massacre that takes place in Judges 20. And thousands, almost every one of their swordsmen die. Only about 600 men are left. And of those 600, if you do the math in, in Judges chapter 20, the overwhelming majority are the slingers, okay? Because you don't have to get close for hand-to-hand -hand combat when you're a slingshot. And when you can do it as accurate as to not miss a hair, that's pretty good. So don't miss the irony. Paul, from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, who was later called Paul from the tribe of Benjamin, is relaying this story about Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, first king of Israel, not the kind of king God has chosen. I think in Paul, we see both stories. Because Saul, Paul, who was Saul, acted much like King Saul for himself in the way that Saul acted. But then there was a redemption. And Paul becomes a man after God's own heart, just like David. And there's a confidence in Paul that's not humility, it's not, or it's not insecurity, it's not arrogance, it's a humility, and it's a confidence in the Lord. And so one of the things that I think we see in David is this confidence in the Lord. And I want to encourage you today, especially, you've got to find this confidence in the Lord. If you're battling insecurity, you've got to deal with it. It's not your giftings, it's not your abilities, it's not your talents, it's the Lord who does it. And every single one of you that are listening to me 
right now, you've got a stone to throw. And if you don't throw it, if you just keep trying to develop it, and when I get better, when I get it perfect, when I get my message fully developed, then I'll go out. You just need to get that thing in the air. You need to cast that stone because God can use a stone thrower that just launches that thing, that's willing, but he can't use one that stays in the tent. Don't miss the picture. David goes down that hill. He's not the best at this. He's gotten pretty good being a shepherd, but he goes down that hill when there's a king in the tent hiding from the battle who is from the tribe that can carry a sling better than the kid going down to battle, but this kid is willing. This kid has confidence in the Lord is God, and he's just going to put that thing in the air, and God puts it right between the eyes. That's the confidence that we need to have as people after God's own heart. Don't let the comparison trap. Heather Mullen, thank you for going on Facebook and just saying, hey, I'm going to take the YouTube verse of the day and I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to share my thoughts. Heather, you're putting a stone in the air and God is going to direct that thing where he needs to direct it. That's what we need to do. You don't need to do what Heather's doing. You need to say, God, what have you put in me? I don't care if it looks fully developed yet. I'm going to put it in the air because God can guide a stone in the air, but he can't guide one that's in the riverbed, and he can't guide one that's in the pocket, and he can't guide one that's hiding in the tent. So it's time for the body of Christ. Restoration Church, it's time for us as individuals to start living out the vision God has put in our hearts for racial restoration, for the setting of the oppressed free, for church planting, for working for the peace and prosperity of our city. God put these things in our hearts and every individual one of us needs to be men and women after God's own heart fulfilling it. Give me just five minutes to go over to cover the rest of these. You'll have to look back through the life of David to see where how David handles persecution and mistreatment. This is what it means. Take a snapshot of this. Write these down. This is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. You're confident in the Lord. You're, you're ready to put the, the, the stone in the air. Whether it's perfect or not, I'm putting it in the air. Now, it's we got to follow wisdom. we got to follow our guidance. we got to follow the multitude of counselors. We've got to pray and fast. It's not just be haphazard and just start slinging rocks everywhere, okay? That's not what we're talking about. But there, there's a time where you just have to take the step, and if you wait to be ready, you'll never be ready. And that's the confidence in the Lord. How David handled persecution and mistreatment from the hands of Saul from the hands of his son Absalom, David refused to take matters into his own hand. He refused to take the kingdom for himself, even though he was rightfully appointed king by the prophet. He refused. He refused. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.23, remember where we suffer and follow? Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, the same way David did. He holds on to the throne loosely. When Absalom comes in, David flees. If God wants me be, to be king, he'll keep me king. We have to handle persecution and mistreatment the way David did. David learned to strengthen himself in the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, 
David was greatly distressed because his men, the people God had brought around him while he was running from Saul, they were talking of stoning him for him. Now his best friends, the people that had been with him, they're turning their back on him. They're bitter towards him. And David strengthened himself in the Lord. We have to come to the place when everyone else is against us, you and I can still find our strength in the Lord. Yes, we need each other. Yes, we want to partner together, but there's going to come a time in your life when it feels like everyone is against you, and you can sulk, you can fight back, or you can dig deep, and you can find strength in the Lord. David, was he fought for justice, and he fought for righteousness. We are going to be a house of justice, a house of mercy, and a house of humility. David is told in 1 Samuel chapter 30, when they come back from this battle, that there were, two, there were men who were too tired to go to battle, and the men who went to battle said, they're not getting the share. We're not sharing with them. And David says, oh no, all will share alike. And he made it a statute and an ordinance in Israel to this day. David understood when all the kings of the world said, if you didn't go to battle, you don't get to share. David said, that's not how this kingdom works. We share and we share alike. We are just. He fought for justice, 2 Samuel 8 says. He administered justice and righteousness for all the people. That's who we've got to be about. David was an extravagant worshiper. We know the stories of him bringing the Ark of the Covenant back in and him dancing with all of his might. He built a tent so that 24-7 praises would be going up around the Ark of the Covenant. They would be singing before the Ark of the Covenant 24 hours, seven days a week. David was all about worshiping the Lord. Whether it was in public or in private, David had a heart to know God. This is what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. David was not perfect, and I do not believe God is looking for perfect people. God is looking for willing people. He's looking for people that will stay true to his story. Yes, he's looking for us to be obedient, but I believe God knows every one of our failings, failings even before we commit them. And he is with us through this moment, and he is going to confront us with them. Every time Saul was confronted, Saul excused it. Saul made excuses. He blamed other people. When David was confronted with his mistakes, when David was confronted with his sin, every single time, David repented. There was brokenness. There was humility. Sometimes he tried to cover it up, and in the Psalms, he's talking about the agony of covering up his sin. When, when you are confronted through a prophet, through a sermon, through the word of God over your sin, you need to repent. You need to be broken before God. You need to say, God, this isn't what my life looks like. It's not okay. I'm not going to blame my parents or my upbringing or my, my spouse or my pastor. I'm not going to blame anyone else. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to be broken before you. That's the type of heart that God is looking for in his people. And the last one, David inquired of the Lord. Guys, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, four times in 14 verses in the same battle, David inquires of the Lord. 
Sometimes when we face a problem and we've prayed about it before, we're like, well, I've been this way before. I know what to do. God told me in the past. We have got to be people that say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to just believe that because I've been this way before, this is how I need to act again. I'm going to inquire of the Lord again. God, is this... Is this what you want me to do? We have got to be people that inquire of the Lord because God is looking for partners in his story. He is looking for people that will act justly, who will love mercy, who will walk humbly, who will live out in confidence individually, corporately. He's looking for a church that says, Lord, we'll sell our building. We'll relocate. We'll do things differently. We don't have to meet in one location. We can do all kinds of stuff. We can meet in seven locations throughout this city. God, as long as we're together, as long as we're connected, as long as we're connected to you, as long as we stay true to the message, God, we're confident in you, and we're not going to wait till we're absolutely ready. When you tell us to go, even if it doesn't feel like we're ready, we're going to put that stone in the air, and we're going to take a step. We're going to be ones that are going to try. We're going to be ones that aren't afraid to fail. God, we're going to be confident in you. When we have to handle persecution or mistreatment, we're going to leave our case in the hands of the one who judges justly. We're going to learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, even if it looks like everyone's against us. We're going to fight for justice. We're going to fight for righteousness. And as a reminder to you, righteousness is always imputed first. And so when we, when we try to get the world to become righteous before we get them to accept the righteousness of Christ, it's a losing battle. Stay true to the message. Nothing wrong with telling them how to live a good moral life, but don't forget this. Righteousness has to be imputed first through faith in Jesus before it can be lived out accurately. So make sure we don't fight the battle the wrong way or fight the wrong battle and try to build a kingdom of empire, but we're trying to build the kingdom of heaven. We want to be extravagant worshipers. We want to live with repentance and brokenness and humility. And we want to be people who inquire of the Lord, who pray without ceasing. Amen? Are you still with me? Are you on the edge of your seat saying, Pastor Tom, you, I am ready to just launch that stone. Because here's the thing, church. Some of you are afraid. Some of you are afraid, you're insecure, you're like, what if, it, what if it goes wrong? What if I miss it? This is why we do it together, because we're going to help each other. We're going to make sure, we're going to watch out, not watch over each one another make, to make mistakes, but watch out for one another, to make sure we live out this message, to make sure that we preach this message, to make sure we stay true to the gospel, but we're going to go for it. We're going to go for the souls of the kingdom of Huron, in, in the, the city of Huron. We're going to go for the souls in, in Beetle County. We're going to go for the souls in Redfield, and in Woonsocket, and in Wessington Springs, and in Wessington, and in DeSmet, and anywhere else that God sends us to go. We're going going after the kingdom, and we're going to establish it through the vision God's put in our hearts, and I pray that you as an individual and us as a corporate body that we're able to live this out fully. And so, Father, I thank you for a church that is gracious. God, I thank you for a church that loves mercy. And God, they are so merciful on a pastor that gave them a ton of information today. They are merciful on a pastor that went five minutes over today. God, they are giving me mercy right now. And God, I pray that you would take the message that I've shared today. God, that you would put it in their hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate what they need to hear today. That you would illuminate tomorrow what they need 
need to hear tomorrow. God, that you would hide these things in our hearts. And as we keep rehearsing them, as we keep praying into them, as we keep living them out, God, that you would help us to fulfill the vision that you have for Restoration Church. God, as a corporate body, help us to understand and see more clearly that all we can accomplish corporately is dependent upon what each of us do as individual members of this body. And so, God, make us men and women who are after your own heart. God, to live our lives the way Abraham did, to live our lives the way David did, to live our lives the way Jesus did. God, to live our lives as people after your heart. God, instill that in us. Put it deep in our hearts today, I pray. And God, when we falter, when we fail, God, I pray for a spirit of brokenness that leads us to repentance and brings us back mentally, spiritually, and physically to that place of right standing. God, to put another stone in the air. So Holy Spirit, do a deep work. Speak to individual hearts right now. God, that one thing, that one thing that you're calling us to. God, that one voice that you want us to be. God, to speak out against oppression. God, to begin to act on behalf of those that are being oppressed in our city, in our state, in our nation, on behalf of the Native Americans, on behalf of the African American community, on behalf of the foreigners, God, in our nation, the illegal aliens in our nation. God, on behalf of those that are being oppressed, on behalf of the poor, God, put in our hearts the vision for how to work for the peace and prosperity of our city, how to make room at the table. God, for those that don't feel worthy to come to the table, God, to bring them to the cross, to bring them to the place where your righteousness is imputed upon them so they have a place at the table. God, help us to walk with people through this journey. God, as they wrestle with what it is to walk out the commands of your kingdom. God, to live in your kingdom. God, help us to love mercy. God, help us to walk in humility, to be people of prayer, to be people of Sabbath, of rest. God, to be people who walk in humility. And so dig these truths deep into our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here today. Um, again, these sermons are on our podcast. They're online. You can go back. You can re-watch. I encourage you, take that list, pray into it this week. Begin to, to let the Holy Spirit show you how to get that stone in the air. God bless you. Thank you guys for being here. Moms, I hope to see you this afternoon. I love you guys. Keep going after it. Let's be men and women after God's own heart. God bless.